1: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host of the show. And periodically on the show, we stop and we reflect on the contributions made by founders of the field of genocide or Holocaust studies. And recently, Bo Bu- Press sorry, published a, a pair of books commemorating the work of Raul Hilberg. Hilberg is arguably the founder of Holocaust studies as an academic discipline in the United States. And its contributions, which, which spread over decades, were immense, and they continue to shape discussion and research today. Peter, and Hay- Peter Hayes and Christopher Browning co-edited one of these books, titled German Railroad's Jewish Souls, The Reichsbahn, Bureaucracy, and the Final Solution. Both Peter and Chris are accomplished historians of the Holocaust. Both have been guests on the show before, and we'll be talking today about their book and about the ways Hilberg shaped our understanding of the Holocaust, and a little bit about what kind of person he was. So Chris and Peter, welcome. Thanks for joining us again on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks for inviting us.
2: Yep, You're welcome, Kelly. Nice to be here.
1: So maybe I'll start with Peter. Why is 2019 the right time to remember Raul Hilberg?
2: Well, in the field of Holocaust studies, I think almost any time is the right time to remember Raul Hilberg. But what brought Chris and I to this particular project was a kind of perception that um, the work he did on the role of the German national railroads in the Holocaust was both pathbreaking and is at the same time hard for students to find. And so we thought that reprinting uh, these two essays where he did the most fundamental work on the subject, but which are hard for people to obtain, would be a useful scholarly function. And then the project just grew from that because when we realized that we were going to also provide some contextualizing essays to this, it occurred to us that we needed also to provide some documentation that students and faculty members could use. And so the project expanded from the two essays that Raul wrote to include a a 50-page document section, and then essays that Chris and I wrote about um, both the the contributions Raul had made to the historiography of the railroads and bureaucracy, and in my case, some of the issues that he had raised, but which subsequent research has improved upon. And so that's basically the, the framework of the book.
3: Yeah, as I saw, it, in a sense, the book uh, is a kind of three-in-one. That is, uh, on the one hand, uh, it provides for students a very succinct slice of Hilbert. It's very difficult for pe- teachers to assign three volumes of The Destruction of the European Jews uh, or to take a slice of it because then you don't get a kind of self-contained piece that he designed to be read in that way. So these two articles in a sense, Hilbert's own self-contained presentation of a particular topic, but one that fits in and illuminates his his whole approach at the same time. And then secondly, for teachers who want to work in primary sources, we have the collection of documents and those that want historiography. That is how we comment upon past historians, how we discuss the ways in which an issue like the railways has been raised and dealt with over time. Uh, It has historiography. So Hilberg documents, Primary sources, historiography, uh, we thought it would serve a number of classroom uses all in one book.
1: So I suspect many people listening to the podcast know a little bit about Hilberg, but, but some do not and some only a little. So, so Chris, who was Roel Hilberg? Yes, Hilberg uh,
3: was uh, born in Vienna, Austria, uh, Came, escaped from Austria in 1939, shortly before the outbreak of war. Uh, his family first got to Cuba and then came to New York the day the war broke out. Uh, he ended the war uh, in the American Armed Services, you know, coming back to Germany to, to occupy it, and then uh, went to school. Uh, and uh, there he became interested in the issue of a sense of, I guess you would say, the interplay of his own family history and uh, a topic that had been touched on at Nuremberg, but never really treated as fully and independently as as he thought it should be. So he proposed to his uh, graduate uh, school uh, advisor, Franz Neumann, uh, that he should do a work on what we now call the Holocaust. Uh, he called it the destruction of the European Jews. And and Neumann basically said, well, that's your funeral, thinking this was a, a sensational topic, uh, one that journalists wrote about, but it wasn't something historians wrote about. This was, you know, mass murder or crime, but it isn't really history. And so in a sense, Hilbert's mission was to make this a bona fide historical topic and show, in fact, that it could be written about, the way historians treat every other topic, uh, and uh, to incorporate this massive Nuremberg documentation. Because most of the documents collected for the trial were never used at the trial, but they were laying there. Uh, and he is the one who became the master of this huge collection of documentation and put it into an overarching framework, a, a single interpretive a model, in a sense, that made this uh, a a understandable historical phenomenon, and not only one that was understandable, one that was absolutely central to understanding European history, 20th century, World War II, national socialism. So he went from the journalist sensational treatment of it as as it was treated in the newspapers out, you know, at Nuremberg to really making it a, a absolutely central topic in the understanding of, of
1: European and world history of our era. So I wonder. I, he, he's a political scientist. What did that back? As I, I believe anyway. What does that background? What does he bring from that social science background to the study of the Holocaust? And, and Peter, maybe I'll invite you to go. But either one.
2: Well, I think that the first thing was that he was interested in structures, and he was hoping to find covering law explanations. So. His attention focused on the bureaucracy because that was one of the elements of national socialist rule that Neumann had identified in his earlier work called Behemoth that was, excuse me, published during the Second World War. And this gave him a, 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 a set of political institutions was his original focus. That's the sort of thing that attracts the attention of a political scientist more than, say, a historian, because we tend to be focused on change over time. Um, And we can describe that through institutions and so on, but we're less interested in finding covering laws than we are in finding particular explanations for discrete sets of events. So I think that's the first thing he brought to it. And then he also brought something that maybe a historian would have had, but a political scientist was particularly devoted to. And that was the word that Chris just used, uh, documentation. He was determined to put this field on firm footing by providing documented description of what happened. Um, that is what he saw as the absolute first challenge, and then combining that with a structural explanation for why. And so
1: I'm really struck. So, so in, in I think your prologue or preface. I don't remember what it's called in the book, but there's a very brief outline of. Of some of the ma- of his major works, uh, in particular, you identify three of them. We've talked about one, the destruction of the European Jewry, but but you also point out that he, he edits a diary, right of, of Adam Chernyakov. and he he eventually publishes a, a different kind of project, trying to understand the experiences of. Of, of and choices made by, by ordinary people, the, the book Perpetrators, Victims, Bystanders. Um, Peter, maybe, maybe you can – those strike me as very different projects. Can, can you maybe talk about how they relate and, and how they're distinct?
2: Well, you can see in the uh, – I think that the the diary is the more anomalous of the three works but because the third one is a, a work that attempts a system of classification, which is a social science-y kind of project. The diary was expressive of something that was particular about Raul that um, it took a little time to recognize, and that was that he was deeply passionate about the injustice of what had occurred. Uh, Behind that facade of examining the detailed documentary record and describing it and talking about structures, he was always deeply moved by this subject. And Chernyakov, the person whose diary he edited, is right at the center of um, what you might call the trauma of the Holocaust, because he was the leader of the Jewish council in Warsaw and was faced with the excruciating dilemmas of um, the Germans insisting that he should identify people to be deported. And this is the moment at which Chernyakov decides to take his own life. so you had a political figure at the very heart of the pain of the subject. And that, I think, is what drew, my, my guess is that's what drew Raul to, to, to um, editing this work. The other thing is, of course, he was, a, he was a document guy. And this was a new kind of document for him. It was a, a new sort of challenge, I think, for him to work with this kind of material rather than German bureaucratic source records, and so he also found that attractive. Chris knew Raoul better than I did, and he might want to jump in on this.
3: Yeah, I I think it is important that in, in the initial reaction to the structure of European Jews, he had presented it as a study of the process of destruction and the machinery of destruction and an explanation of how this event had happened. Uh, and in the course of that, he said, you cannot tell the story of the perpetrators and the process of destruction without talking about the ways in which the Germans manipulated the victims. Uh, and therefore, the relations between the Nazis and the Jewish councils that they appointed, uh, the Jewish police and the ghettos, he felt was an essential aspect of the story. Uh, and those were sensitive topics, and for some people reading the book initially, uh, I think it appeared to them as a kind of blame the victim. Uh, and so he was badly he was he was sharply criticized on some of the things that he had said about uh, the role of Jewish leadership and Jewish institutions. In the destruction process and how they had been used by the Germans. Now, in the second edition of Destruction of the European Jews that came out in the mid 80s, he softens some of the language when he realizes uh, that maybe some of the words he had chosen, like collaboration, was not the right word. So that disappears in the second. And he uses, you know, they were co-opted rather than that they collaborated. But uh, for him then, uh, and one of the criticisms was made was that he had worked in German documents. He's seeing the Jewish experience through the eyes of the Germans who, one, are totally unsympathetic and two, are often uh, telling, you know, they're they're filtered through their own anti-Semitism and that you can't possibly talk about uh, the Jewish side of the Holocaust Dependent upon German documents, so for Raoul, part of this was uh, to show uh, that I can use Jewish documents. Uh, here is a key one, one of the most empires, the most the leader of the biggest ghetto who left this extraordinary document that uh, has not been well used, uh, and he wanted to have a definitive edition of it. His introduction to it is a superb piece on the nature of the ghetto and the nature of ghetto governance. Uh, and then he has a document section at the end. So it's a classic Hilberg book, but in the same time with an utterly different kind of source than the Nuremberg documents. Uh, and it's certainly... Uh, also, I think, made very clear that here there is no blaming the victim. I mean, this uh, Chernyakov comes off uh, as the utterly tragic figure. Uh, and so I think in that regard, uh, it was uh, a kind of personal voyage for him, too, uh, to come to grips with some of the criticisms of the, of the destruction of the European Jews uh, when it initially came out.
1: Chris, you knew, as Peter says, you knew him. What kind of person, what, what kind of colleague was he and what kind of person was he? Uh, it depended on what context you saw
3: him. Uh, when he was doing public presentations, he was uh, you know, very formal. He always dressed in a dark suit. Uh, and uh, he would give his talks always without notes, you know, always you know, prepared in his mind. He could talk for an hour flawlessly uh, without a slip, uh, not an ah or hum or a haul, uh, and just give an absolutely you know, fluid lecture. Uh, But it was a formal kind of thing. Uh, If you were with him alone, uh, he, in fact, had uh, a love to joke, had a good sense of humor, and was much more informal. But he never wanted to show that side of his personality in public, because I think it didn't mesh with the historic or the, the academic persona that he was comfortable with. Uh, so I always, in a sense, felt I, I, I had this kind of schizophrenic experience with him that I knew Rowell as someone who could sit back and be absolutely laid back, uh, love to tell jokes, love to talk politics. Uh, and then I saw his public persona where he was always very somber, always very formal, uh, and and uh, it was, in a sense, kind of a a, a, a a very different presentation of himself than than he was in private. I would say the other thing that was really, I think, important, uh, is uh, despite the fact that he had kind of this doyen status, uh, the degree to which he went out of his way to help young scholars, I think was very crucial. Uh, And uh, that he certainly was very helpful to me, but I think he continued that through his life, working at the museum, collecting microfilms. I think people could come to him for advice. Uh, I think he played a role, you know, he never had graduate students because he was at the University of Vermont which didn't have a graduate history program. So in a sense, he became uh, a mentor to many of us in a less structured, much more informal way. But that was part of his very key role uh, in terms of, of, of our, him, you know, calling him the founder of Holocaust Studies.
1: Part of us was he was a mentor at large. Did, did he see himself? Does he have a, a, a kind of a personal goal of, of- Helping create a group of scholars who study the Holocaust, or is this just a reflection of his willingness to work with people one-on-one? Is that part of his personal vision for himself?
3: Well, I think it. I think you know, once he
1: saw that virtually anybody, if he saw that they were a
3: serious student, uh, then I think he was interested. Uh, that uh, that he was not out to create a school of Hilbert uh, or anything like that. He wasn't trying to clone people. Uh, he was basically very interested in, in furthering people to do what they were working in. If he thought that they were really serious scholars and doing really
2: interesting work, even if it was quite divergent from what he did. I think he was very dedicated to the development of the field. And so when he saw someone he thought was going to make a, an important, a significant contribution, then he became a mentor. He, He did go out of his way to be helpful and, uh, I actually learned ways in which he was helpful to me that I didn't know about while he was alive. I've learned him. He now has a couple of biographers who have looked through his papers and I have found out things that he did uh, that helped me that I had no idea about at the time.
1: Well, let's turn to the book you've got. You all have um, compiled and edited and produced. And I wonder, Peter, maybe we'll start with you. This is a book about railroads. And what's striking about it is the degree to which Hilberg's serious studies of railroads is new in terms of thinking about the Holocaust. So so why hadn't people or what had people what had people thought about the role railroads played in the Holocaust before Hilberg came along? And why hadn't it been studied more academically?
2: I don't I think people had taken it for granted, if you will, that and not looked into how this, as Chris said, Raoul was very interested in machinery and process. Uh, I think he felt that the way to get to the bottom of the Holocaust was not so much to ask why, but to ask how, and to produce answers. And if you produced enough comprehensive answers to the how question, you would be able to explain the why. Uh, how it, uh, the why of its extent um and and the massive damage that was done so he focused in he wants to know it in every case of the things he looks at in the destruction of the european jews he wants to know who did this how did they do it how was the will of the regime or the ideology of the fuhrer translated into actual action and of course um you know i'm 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 tempted to use a um cheap analogy but um, and a somewhat misleading one but the railroads are where the rubber met the road um, they're where the the actual process had to move large numbers of people to camps. the principal vehicle of doing that was rail transport and he wanted to know how could they do this how did they he, how did it become integrated into the normal operations of this business, if you will? that you are going to send people to their deaths. Um, and that's what he wanted to explain and, and, uh, and worked it out with remarkable detail down to those essays tell you how it was financed. They tell you how the train schedules were, who drew up the train schedules and what offices were involved. So I think that's one side of the story is that that's Raoul wanted to know how, and, um, those essays, which were done in the late '70s uh, and, and in the late '80s, those essays were really the only thing. That, it, it, there was some work in Germany going on at the same time, but it did not attract uh, broad attention. So this was really opening up the the window of, to to look at this particular manifestation of a larger problem. The larger problem that he wanted to explain is how was it that um, normal practices of an institution could produce such extreme results? How was it that the individuals who are responsible for drawing up railroad schedules and so forth can treat the transportation of people to their death as an ordinary function of their enterprise?
3: Yeah, I think Peter's hit on that that normalization. In a sense, he was showing, in a sense, how genocide came out of the ability of the Nazis to normalize mass murder Uh, and, as he put it, to basically harness every facet of organized German life, Uh, that this wasn't something done on the side by one group of Nazi fanatics in the SS, that this was just all-encompassing. And in one way or another, virtually every aspect of organized life in Germany was coordinated, synchronized, brought in and contributed in some way. And for him, the railway was the archetypal example of this. He says it's very ubiquity and it's very size made it virtually invisible. Cause as Peter said, you took it for granted. Uh, and so for him, that became an in a sense, a emblematic symbolic of, of this even broader issue of how, as an society, entire society, basically at harness to genocide and sees what they're doing as simply, not business as usual.
1: So I'm intrigued by what the way Peter phrased this, and I heard it kind of reflected in what Chris said, and, and so I'll ask you just to make sure I heard right, and then ask you to comment on it. What I heard was the Holocaust, or the, the the actions against Jewry, were integrated into the normal operations of the railway road, rather than the other way around. What did that mean in practice? Well, in
3: practice, it meant that the same person who organized charter trains to take factory workers to their vacations in the Alps also contacted uh, someone in the Eichmann's office and organized charter trains to take Jews from Dusseldorf to to Auschwitz. Uh, And they used the same fee structure. Uh, They used the same procedures, the same forms. Uh, And so whether you were sending Jews to their death or German workers to their vacation, the same person doing the same procedures, organizing the same kind of charter train, only one was decent railway cars, and the others were either uh, obsolete cars that couldn't be used for anything else or even cattle cars. Uh, so the people knew the difference. I mean, uh, they used the same procedures, but they knew perfectly well that different passengers were riding in different kinds of equipment. Uh, so in a sense, it's half normalized. And on the other hand, uh, it's also tailored uh, to uh, the, the very different passengers they're dealing with. And they can do both
2: of those things simultaneously. And ask no questions about it. I think the other thing is that <clears throat> they know that they're using this equipment to transport people. They classify, they write different letters uh, to d- designate shipments of Jews out of Germany or Jews in Poland. They write, they they use different code letters for the transports. But um, so they're quite aware that they're dealing with separate categories of people, but they do not and using separate kinds of equipment. But they do not ask any questions about the effects of transporting people going on vacation as opposed to people being sent to a place from which the people never emerge.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: So I'm, I, I want to ask the how to why question in a second, but put that aside for a moment. How many they were there? I I'll just ask Peter to start. How 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 broadly was were these the processes used to transport Jews? How broadly was participation in this spread across the the railway system?
2: Well, there are different ways to answer this question. I mean, in the first place, the the Reichsbahn is an enormous institution. It has almost a million employees uh, so that you can say that the the. Potential to be involved spreads across large parts of the society. Um, The number of people who are making the decisions, that depends on the number of offices that are involved. If someone is being shipped, if Jews are being shipped from France, then there is a transportation office in Paris that involves people scheduling. There are people at the border when you cross from France into Germany. Who have to know um, that the train is coming and that there has to be a, a, route, a different routing? The different office takes responsibility. And then there are people at the destination point. Um, if you're going to, uh, if a train is going to Auschwitz, it's very likely going through Posen or uh, Breslau, and therefore the office in, in those places has to know. In one of the documents we in, put in the book, where we talk, where we show the routing of uh, trains and so forth. It speaks of hundreds of copies of that piece of that piece of paper, that routing slip, being prepared. So there are large numbers of people who come into contact with the shipment as it goes across Europe.
3: Yeah, and, and certainly we know from the survivor testimonies that these trains were very slow; that they always got set aside when there was oncoming traffic. So basically, every stretch of railway across Europe. People knew which train had to get sidetracked to wait for oncoming traffic, and there was no hurry because it didn't matter when they got there. Uh, And so everybody on that route had to know that you handle this train by a certain manner and a different priority than others. Uh, And so basically every train station across Europe has to be brought in in terms of the notification about what this train is and how you treat it. Uh, so while maybe a few people actually arrange the scheduling of the train, virtually everybody on the entire route has to know how to treat that train and, and, and how it's treated the same and how it's treated differently from all the other traffic that's on that same track.
2: Now, this is perhaps the point to mention a countervailing fact, which is that there were fewer trains involved with deportation than one might think. Um probably over the span of four years from the fall of 1941, when the deportation trains begin, to the fall of 1944, where they cease to go to death camps, uh, there may have been about 2,200 trains all told, That special trains that were assembled to deport people. And that is sounds like a big number, but spread over four years, it's not a very big number. And then you add to that that Compared to the number of trains that were operating every day in the orbit of the uh, German railway system, it's a tiny figure. There were generally about 28,000, 30,000 trains operating a day. And this is a little more than 2,000 trains over four years. So everybody had to know how to handle it. And everybody knew that this was a special category of people. But it was also embedded in a very complicated system in which people are constantly dealing with lots of different issues and problems. And that, the very volume, makes it easier to integrate into the normal functioning of the system uh, so that uh, people can, and then people can turn a blind eye to it, can ignore it, say, I have more important things to do, and not reflect on the fact that they are participating in, they're they're complicitous in, Murder.
1: That's actually what I was gonna ask next, is this is this is often interpreted by scholars and, and, and readers as as signifying a a way in which a bureaucracy and a system can perform or can um Attain or or strive toward or that's not right. Strive is not right. Can can accomplish evil without the individual's meaning to accomplish evil or being I don't know. Evil is maybe not the right word, but attempting to perpetrate. What? How does Hilberg read that? Does he see this as people who are simply doing their job and not trying, not motivated by ideology, or or? How does he understand the the purposes of the employees of the railroad?
3: You know that changes a bit over time. Uh, and in by the time he got to the mid '80s, when the when the second edition of Destruction of the European Jews comes out, uh, he talks about not only this this capacity of synchronization and integration of everybody into this, but about this sense of mission, this sense of historical achievement uh, of people, the a sense. Sensing that they were making history, uh, now how far that extends uh, is not clear, uh, and whether it goes down to, you know, the uh, the station master in some station at, on the border of, of, of Poland and Germany, but but he did begin to think that that in fact uh, a significant number of people in Germany uh, had bought into this as a kind of historic moment, uh, a historic achievement uh, that they could take pride in, uh, that, uh, that this was uh, an accomplishment. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily out of, uh, out of uh, hatred of the victim as uh, a sense of overcoming obstacles. Uh, here you had these war, all these demands on all these trains, all these problems of of, of of supply and whatever. And despite that, look what you had accomplished, and look how you made this come off without a hitch. So that it's a coming in a sense, in a sense for him, I think was even more a sense of professional pride than it was a expression of of anti-Semitism or Nazi ideology.
2: I think he also saw this as a temptation that is built into a lot of modern institutions, um, that this sense of professional fulfillment for, with which people feel rewarded or proud of themselves, that this is a standing temptation that goes with bureaucracies. It, goes, it applies to corporations as much as it does to the German railroads uh, or even to parts of the German civil service and so on. And he, he wanted to k- keep reminding us of this, that institutions are seducible, and they are seducible in part by the dedication of their personnel to the institution.
1: Of course, one group of people we've not talked about yet are the people who are guarding the trains. So, uh, Chris, you want to say something about who guards the trains and what that says about them? The how?
3: Yes, the the German police, uh, and particularly the branch of the German police called the Order Police, so the ones that provide the guards, uh, they are the ordinary police. Uh, on the one hand, you had uh, the security police and the criminal police, which were kind of specialized groups uh, and were much more tightly tied to to the SS. Uh, the Order Police are basically your city cops and your, your uh, county police patrolmen and whatever else. Uh, And so that when trains were organized to go from various cities in Germany, uh, basically a small detachment, usually it's 10 or 15 uh, local policemen uh, are assigned to basically guard the train uh, to the East. And uh, then uh, they get a ride back on regular transportation on the the return trip. Uh, And for at least in the, the, study I did on one uh, group of policemen from Hamburg. uh, This was rather a coveted assignment because uh, you could buy stuff in the occupied territories much cheaper than in Germany. And you could go and get stuff and bring it home that you couldn't have, couldn't get in a German store. Uh, So that uh, to be chosen to guard one of these trains was a kind of special opportunity. Uh, And so it wasn't uh, some, 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 you know, uh, dire task or some dirty work. Uh, This was your shopping spree chance. Uh, so for for the guards of the trains this was this was not some terrible uh, duty taking people to their deaths uh, it was going someplace to fill your your suitcase and to come home and provide for your family uh, goods that you couldn't get in
2: Germany we included in the document section three reports by uh, people who led the guarding units on three deportation trains and one of the Remarkable things to me and I uh, look, reading them all these years later is how self-centered they are. I mean, they're, they're really providing an account of a standard management challenge. How do I get from point A to point B with all these people um, that I'm supposed to keep on the train and prevent from escaping and so forth. I have, and, and I have 15 men to do it and there's very little, there's almost no trace of sympathy uh, in these accounts for the people who are being guarded and brought. Uh, It's just, it's all about us. It's about our struggle to fulfill the assignment. Um, The nice things that happened on the way when, you know, at one train station, a Red Cross, a battalion, a a group of Red Cross nurses were there to give them barley soup. Uh, And then the difficulties of, on the other hand, difficulties of, uh, stretches of the train where the heating didn't work and so on. And it's, it's just described in a as if it was a report on any train trip. It might have been a, a troop transport for that matter, but they are carrying people to ghettos and to uh, death sites and the report is really all about us.
1: Yeah, I was struck in some of those reports about the, the lessons learned or the recommendations that are at the end of those reports and they are, they are things like needing to put the uh, the car that the uh, police are in in the middle of the train rather than at the end so they can survey both ends of the train at once. But there are also thinly veiled complaints against the unwillingness of people at stations they've moved on to do what they were supposed to do and to um, provide the supplies they're supposed to supply. And as you say, they, are, they read, if you didn't know the context, like any report written by any people who were doing any ordinary task.
2: Yeah, and I think the other thing that you're raising here is this this um, Janus-faced nature of the process. On the one hand, we think of these deportation shipments and so forth as terribly efficient, and they were in the sense that they had terrible outcomes and people were transported. On the other hand, they were terribly improvised all along the way, and they uh, there were all kinds of Problems that whoever was the gu- head of the guard unit had to solve, like uh, the heating didn't work, or the car was at the wrong place, or it rained and my my men's uniforms wouldn't dry, and so on. Um, and the Holocaust as a whole has this very ambiguous quality. On the one hand, there was a machinery that operated, and on the other hand, it was a dilapidated, ramshackle machine.
1: Chris Peters talked about some documents. I wonder if you have a document that um, you want to point to that you thought was particularly meaningful or important for this collection. Well, certainly
3: the one uh, that I find uh, the most horrifying is the third of the transport reports, which is different than the first two. Uh, this is the Westerman report uh, of a train from uh, eastern Galicia to Belchets. And this is a different kind of transport because there, there had been lots of local shootings already. The, the victims know uh, what fate awaits them. Uh, and the trains are much that va- that. This is a train that's taking over 5,000 people crammed into it. Uh, and the train is, is the engines they assign are, are absolutely at the end of their life. They crawl along. They can't get much speed so people can break out and jump and survive. And so this is a battle. You have these 10 policemen guarding 5,000 people. They all shoot off all of their ammunition. Uh, they then get their BNS to get more ammunition, and they're just fighting the whole way. And when that train arrives in Belchester, 2,000 of the 5,000 people are already dead. Now, that's partly because of the shooting, but also because they've been marched from all over. Uh, nearby towns kept in the open fields, waiting for days. They've had no food or water for a week or more. And this blazing summer heat. So most of them, I think, probably died of, of dehydration uh, and, and so forth. But this is this is a literally a battle uh, to get as many people kept on the train, dead or alive, until they can get to bell And it, it is truly one of the most horrifying documents, uh, I think, you know, that one can read about the Holocaust.
1: Yeah, you know, I didn't planned on asking this, but so there's this famous clip of of Hilberg working his way through in in the documentary show, working his way through a very bureaucratic, impersonal kind of document, and juxtaposed with the kind of horror that is reflected in the the document that you just cited. How did how did Hilberg try and see the humanity, or Avoid the trap of becoming ensnared in the, the, the abstractness of many of the documentary sources he was using, at least to in, in, in the destruction of the European Jewry and, and this research on railroads.
2: I don't think he entirely did avoid the trap. Um, I think that one of the things about the destruction of the European Jews is the, the control he controlled his fury. Um really well. And so what he does is he provides you with this analytical description. And it is or, or there are many people who felt at the time that it is a little abstract and distancing. I think that if you but when you saw Raul speak, when he lectured, it was like um, he was a stem winder. And it, it was almost like a, a, an old fashioned preacher. And this is where his the the intensity of his feelings about the subject came out. It was it was orally when he when he lectured. Um, I think the you know one of the things we've rediscovered in the study of the Holocaust in the last I think ten years is an emphasis on its brutality and the gore of it, as opposed to the bureaucratic machinery notion of factories of death um, there's been a kind of rebalancing of the way people try to capture the subject whole we all have a we all come to our we all uh, occupy particular positions in the history of the development of our fields and Raul had an enormous challenge because he was making this where it, it wasn't there before um, and he decided that the first the first job was going to show people how this could become the project of a whole society. And that entailed talking about the way the institutions became involved and, and so on and so forth. And that was, a, that was a, a huge challenge, big enough to take a whole career. And as we said before, it didn't actually take his whole career because his work evolved. It went in, into different uh, problems as it, as it went on. But this was a big chunk of the subject to bite off initially, and we, and that's what he did. That was his chief mission.
1: So that's a nice segue to think about how his contributions, um, specifically about the railroads, but brought more broadly if you would like to take that, um, wh- how have they aged? How have we – where have we revised his conclusions? Where have we accepted them? And and where have we used those conclusions about the railroads as a as, – as as a pointer to to launch into new directions of research? And Chris, I guess I'll ask you to go first. Yeah, what I think is is that we've extended uh,
3: and built on on what he had. Uh, for instance, uh, he certainly has a, a large section of the book on Eastern Europe uh, and events there. But at that point, he was still fairly reliant upon the Einsatzgruppen reports as our main source. Uh, and certainly the opening up of the archives in Eastern Europe after 1989. Uh, allowed us to go and write uh, in, in much greater depth about the grassroots levels of the Holocaust and the use of German trial records, where uh, the interviewing of all sorts of witnesses and and perpetrators allowed us to, to in a sense, uh, get eyewitness accounts of what was behind the reports. Uh, and so I would say uh, one of the areas where I think we've most significantly expanded on Hilbert not in contradiction to him, but expanded beyond, is that we've gotten greater emphasis in the East and we've gone down to the local level. uh, And because uh, of the different nature of the sources, we've gone beyond the German documents to also look much more carefully at the local populations and the dynamic of the interaction in which almost every case, it is a multi-ethnic interaction so that in the Ukraine you have Poles and uh, Ukrainians and Jews and then the Russians come and then the Germans come. And by the time the Germans come, uh, they can uh, throw a match on a combustible set of ethnic tensions and the whole thing will explode into a massive genocide. Uh, So I think we've one area that that wouldn't have been accessible in the kinds of documents Raoul had to work with from the beginning, the Nuremberg documents, is to get a whole much more differentiated, more ethnically rich, uh, more complex picture of grassroots level working out of the Holocaust uh, on the local level in Eastern Europe, village by village, different ethnic combinations from Lithuania to the Ukraine uh, to, you know, Transnistria uh, to Croatia, uh, where almost every place is a different combination, but almost every place you have a ever more complex multi-ethnic conflict becoming intensified from World War One on, in the face of the collapse of empires and the drawing of new national borders, and uh, the attempts of some ethnic groups to to gain dominance and purity uh, at the expense of other minorities.
2: And I think that uh, within Germany. Uh, He, the influence of Hilberg on scholarship on German society and the development of the Third Reich has been enormous because his findings with regard to bureaucracy and railways have been extended greatly into the study of German industry uh, and the involvement of corporations, in particular, and the way in which the mechanisms Raoul identified worked themselves out in that context. In a lot of the studies of the German civil service, the various parts of the civil service. and in the ways, and you know, the the one of the catchphrases of the field now is working toward the Führer, the way in which the whole society became involved in imagining what would Hitler want me to do, and in a sense, Raoul is the pioneer of that, and showing that this this thought process did become embedded, and whole institutions tried to act out their answer to that question.
1: Well, we've taken a lot of your time. I always um, end the interviews with two uh two consistent questions and the first i will amend slightly um i wonder if you each would be willing to suggest to the audience a book or, or some reading or maybe a documentary i don't know that that will help them understand raul hilberg and his contributions or the ways in which people specifically have built on his contributions what what should we read this weekend that that is inspired by the work you've done. Well, one of course would be Raoul's own uh, autobiography, *The Politics of Memory*.
3: Uh, it's it's a, a very interesting book. It's a it's a sad book. It's a book that he does not take great sense of satisfaction in all that he's accomplished, uh, and and uh, that it, it really is a kind of a book about uh, all the all the obstacles that stood in his way. Uh, so you see the somber side of Hilberg in that, but it still uh, is certainly uh, is is an important. Part of of hilberg and and how he wanted us to see his uh academic career
2: well i think yeah i think if um uh, to get a sense of the man you could hardly do better than to look at the interview sections with him in Shoah, in lansman's film they are uh, they are faithful renditions of him in the first place and of his working methods um And and they are good illustrations of how powerful his insights were. Now, I think if we want to get a sense of how the field has changed, one other possibility is to look at Shaw Friedlander's two volumes on the history of the Holocaust, which attempt to do an integrated history that are constantly going back and forth between decision making on the part of the perpetrators and their actions to effects and impact on the on the victims, on the other hand. And that is a somewhat different project than the one Raoul undertook.
3: Yeah, I would say if you looked at Hilberg, it's kind of an overarching structure. And you look at Freelander, it's kind of a mosaic. All these little snippets of experiential history from diaries and letters. Uh, And so it's
1: a very, very different way to approach the same same subject. And so the final question I always ask, um, I know that you're both retired, um, and I'm only a little bit jealous, but uh, I wonder... In retirement, are, are you continuing to work in the field? Are you writing something? Or are you simply enjoying being able to wake up and watch other people go to work?
2: Well, no, we did this book.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Is there another book on the horizon?
2: In my case, I'm uh, finishing, with the help of a German colleague, a book that I started on 20 years ago, uh, which is called uh, Profits and Persecution, uh, German Big Business, the Nazi Economy, and the Holocaust. And I hope that sometime in 2020, it will be, it'll be done. Um, but you know, the, the marvelous thing about being a scholar is when you retire, you don't have to completely retire. You get to keep reading and enjoying what the the next generation is producing, uh, and sometimes being aggravated by it. Um, and, and that's, uh, that's what I find the difference between my retired life and my working life is probably less than it would be for somebody who is a, dependent on a lab or had a regular office in a law firm or something like that.
3: Yeah, I've, well, there's, I have no book project, but I tried to do smaller things that I could finish in a month or two, uh, you know, a chapter for somebody or this collection of book reviews for New York Review of Books or something of that sort, something that I can always see the finish line. Uh, I'm not ready to take on a a five-year book project, but uh, discrete projects that are confined, have limits, uh, that can uh, get to the finish line uh, in a reasonable length of time and then decide, do I want to do something else or what I want to do, Uh, but uh, basically to to eat in small bites.
1: Always a good recommendation. and so I look forward to, um, to reading additional materials from both of you. We've been having a, a, a really interesting discussion with Christopher Browning and Peter Hayes about their new book, German Railroads, Jewish Souls, the Reichsbahn, Bureaucracy and the Final Solution, published by Berghahn Press. I hope, listeners, that uh, you'll be back with me next time uh, when we talk to Brendan Sims, uh, who has written a brand new biography of Hitler called Hitler, a Global Biography. Uh, Until then, I hope that you all have a good month. And Peter and Chris, thanks so much for joining me. And I wish you the best of falls. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.